Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another edition of the WKRP cast. This week, we're losing weight and getting stuff done. What is our episode, Donna? We're ready to discuss pills. The air date was January 20th, 1982. It was written by Steve Marshall, executive story consultant, Lisa Levin, directed by Asad Kalata. The station sells some new commercial spots to a diet company whose magic diet pills are not as innocuous as they seem. If you're checking air dates on IMDb, we're finally back on track, at least for this week and next. We're doing our fourth season rewatch in air order, according to the work Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock, has done to establish actual air dates. As of this episode, pills were back to the air dates as they were originally listed on IMDb. We're pretty sure the list of air dates originally given to IMDb was the planned list for the season. Either the network or the production company didn't bother to change the dates on the master list when preemptions happened. The order on the Shout Factory discs is how some programmer originally had them planned. Panicked programmers who made last-minute changes mid-season threw things out of whack and nobody wrote it down. We're going with the out-of-whack order. There's a familiar name in the director's chair. Asad Kalata is back for his 14th out of 15 episodes directed on the show. The Egyptian-born Kalata is the third most prolific director on WKRP. He had his greatest impact in the first season where he directed 12 of the 22 episodes. Fun fact about Mr. Collada, not only did he direct 77 episodes of The Facts of Life, he also directed the Facts of Life TV movie, The Facts of Life Goes to Paris. Assad will take the big chair at WKRP once more for the episode I'll Take Romance. I didn't go looking into it, but I'm wondering if they did that on location in Paris. Facts of Life had some I, they big might bucks. Have. They, they may might have. They may have actually gone to Paris. A trivia item on IMDb mentions a Quincy M.E. episode from earlier in the month called Bitter Pills. It ran on January 6th. The storyline covered the same topic, only Quincy could be harder hitting since it was a drama. In the Quincy story, a high school student dropped dead at a basketball practice as a result of abusing legal pep pills. We don't think the two are related since WKRP's writing and production cycle is quite a bit more than two weeks. We do think this illustrates how big a concern this topic of legal speed was in society at the time. 
We open up this episode in the studio, so you know what that means, studio poster watch. Yay! The tubes are still under the record library, Bob Seeger's under the window, and the police continue to hang out in the middle of the studio door. We're noticing three new promo posters we haven't seen before. The guy with the pencil-thin mustache looking to the right over the Cincinnati map is George Benson. This poster is promoting his 1981 two-disc compilation release, The George Benson Collection. This album contained 15 previously released tracks, plus two new cuts. The new songs were Never Give Up on a Good Thing and the top 10 smash single, Turn Your Love Around. Love Around would peak at number five on the U.S. Hot 100, and it scores pretty well around the world. It may not seem like it, but there was a time before you, too. Check the horizontal poster under George Benson. Those floppy-haired lads are you, too, on the brink of superstardom. This poster is promoting their second studio album, October. There were no U.S. hits from this one, but fans will recognize the first single, Fire. go to number four on the Irish singles chart and will peak at number 35 on the UK singles chart. U.S. music fans won't discover U2 in a big way until their next album, 1983's War. And then the U.S. will adopt them and make them their own. (laughs) The poster above the police on the studio door is a promo for Texas-born guitarist and vocalist Gary Myrick's second album, Living in a Movie. Remember that black and white, that weird line-drawn poster that was out in the studio hallway was for Gary's first album. They like Gary on WKRP. This is kind of a cool design to the poster. It looks like a ripped ticket stub over a field of light purple with Gary's picture faded into the ticket. There were no hits and no chart action of any kind despite the cool poster, but the Amazon music listing does reference I'm Not a Number as a, quote, radio hit. I'm not a number. Gary's first album was billed as Gary Myrick and The Figures. We saw this one listed mostly with Gary's name alone, only occasionally with The Figures. And that brings us up to date on the poster watch in the studio. Let's get into the episode. Johnny is on the mic and Bailey is organizing the carts. We hear What Did I Say by Ray Charles playing out over the air. And it does feel all right, babies, because we're going out with Ray Charles and a big one from 1958. Now the doctor is going to have to pull the plug on your life support system until tomorrow morning. 
But coming up next, sitting in for the uh, ever-absent Rex Earhart, here's some guy on tape from Los Angeles. Johnny starts the tape, and we hear some overacting and some really bad editing to make this canned tape personalized to the market. Thanks, Johnny. It's another terrific Wednesday here in Cincinnati. Here's number one on the WKRP Heavy Hits Counter. Johnny is shaking his head as he puts the albums back into their covers. I don't think any of them were that bad, but some of those were really bad. They really stuck out. It's like, whoa. A lot of times it would be like the first line or the last line of a talk bit would have the city name or something in it to make it customized. Right. But the rest of it was obviously recorded at a different <laughs> time on a different day. So that, those edits were there, but I don't think they were quite that bad. As the canned announcer from Los Angeles goes into a song, we go into possibly the worst Shout Factory edit so far in the entire series. Here's the problem. The guy actually went into the old songs by Barry Manilow. Shout Factory couldn't get clearance for the Barry cut, so they've replaced the Manilow with some sort of country-tinged music bed, which doesn't make sense even on WKRP with their format. Checking in with the big D, Dale Kovar, and his set of recreated discs, this is what the mix sounded like when this episode first aired in January of 1982. Here's number one on the WKRP Heavy Hits Counter. Boy, where do they get this guy, anyway? It's only for a week. Uh, well, I guess I can take it for that long. Maybe not. You can hear how the music keeps going and going under the scene as Johnny and Bailey are talking. Shout Factory must not have gotten a clean version of this scene. Johnny and Bailey's original conversation must have been mixed in with the music. Since they replaced the music, they were also forced to replace the voices. We get recut voices for Bailey and Johnny over the generic music bed on the Shout Factory DVD. They're trying, but it's kind of a mess. Check it out. Here's number one on the WKRP Heavy Hits Counter. Where'd they get this guy anyway? It's only for a week. Well, I guess I can take it for that long. I'm calling up the station. Maybe not. Johnny opened up with What I Say by Ray Charles. Shout Factory was able to clear this one again. If What I Say sounds familiar on Johnny's show, you'd be right. We heard him play it in the Save the Flim Building episode, I Am Woman. For an extended clip and info about the song, check that episode of the podcast. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all night long, all right now. Hey, hey. Mr. Los Angeles, who sounds suspiciously like Casey Kasem, actually went into the Barry Manilow tune, The Old Songs, on the network airing of the episode. This cut comes from Manilow's 1981 album, If I Should Love Again. It would peak at number 15 on the U.S. Hot 100, but, and this was Barry's sweet spot, it spends three weeks at number one on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart. Old songs bring back the
old songs is his 11th number one on the adult contemporary chart. Bailey tells him it's only for a week. Johnny figures he can take it for that long. He listens for a while to the can program, then turns the volume all the way down. At the point where Johnny turns the music down, that's when we get back to Howard and Jan's actual voices. Where's Rex off to now? She tells him he went to a tennis tournament. Is it time for the Debbie Boone Invitational already? (laughs) (laughs) Bailey smiles at Johnny and heads out of the studio just as Herb enters. Hey, Big Bailey. Hey, Big Herb. Hey, Big John. How's the guy? And would you get a look at Herb, I believe? It's It's time. time. Herb Darling. Fashion alert. Herb's plaid pleasure today is a jacket of red, yellow, blue, and light blue. We've seen this jacket before. He's pairing the jacket with a lavender dress shirt. His tie is purple with white teardrop designs. He finishes the ensemble with wine red pants and his signature white belt and shoes. Lovely. Just lovely. We were talking about how this is just a really, really ugly coat. Just so It is. I mean, ugly. as soon as you see it, it's like, oh, that's ugly. But I've noticed I'm getting more used to seeing Herb in ugly, and it doesn't seem to... I'm be, I'm becoming desensitized to it. <laughs> when I see him in these awful, awful outfits, it's like, oh, that's Herb. It just well, doesn't yeah, seem as bad. He's grown on us. Johnny mentioned Rex is at the Debbie Boone Tennis Invitational. We talk about Pat's daughter, Debbie, and her recording career in our second season episode. Baby, if you've ever wondered, check it out for full details on Ms. Boone. We hope Rex is having fun wherever he is, but we couldn't find a Debbie Boone tennis tournament of any kind happening anywhere in the real world. Johnny is making some entries on the clipboard when he turns to Herb. Let's talk about this hermetically sealed DJ. Herb is very proud of this automated monstrosity. Oh, yeah. Two hours of show all on tape didn't cost us a dime. Well, you'd never know it. Herb tells Johnny he has nothing to worry about. You're certainly never going to be replaced by a syndicated show. You are el numero one. Now, haven't I always said that? Every time you want something, yeah. Johnny is stacking albums and tapes. Johnny asks Herb what he wants. Just the use of that oh-so-persuasive voice of yours for just three little 60-second spots. Johnny tells Herb to forget it. He is out of there. Herb explains the guy asked for Johnny. Johnny pauses, but no. You just tell him the doctor is not for sale. Johnny picks up his coat, the stacks of records and tapes, and begins walking towards the door. Herb steps in front of him. Almost forgot. There's a talent fee, 35 a spot. Sold. Oh. Oh, yeah, there's that. Johnny drops the stack of records and tapes on the desk and has a seat. You weren't going to tell me about the fee part of it, were you? Well, no, he wasn't going to tell him until he had to. Herb puts his hands on his hips and tells him, sure he was. Think I'd cheat you? Johnny just stares at Herb. Herb points in the direction of the hallway, and he tells Johnny, Dave's waiting for him. Herb opens the studio door. There is a man in the hallway who Herb invites into the studio. Dave Wickerman, I want you to meet the incredible Dr. Johnny Fever. Dave and Johnny shake hands. This is really a pleasure. I am a fan. Great. Great. I'm not kidding. I have been listening to you 
for four years. Really? Herb leaves the studio, and you can see him go into the production studio in the next room. Dave continues gushing over Johnny. You are one of the greats. <laughs> I wouldn't Dave. go so far. Really right. sensational. You can see Johnny is a bit uncomfortable. Herb gets on the mic in the production studio. He's motioning for them to come in. Guys, oh, really? guys, guys, I, I really hate like, I hate like heck to dive in here, but don't we have some spots to do, huh? And I got a little bit of a technical workshop. Anytime, well, of course you do. Anytime I do these, I feel like when I used to watch a war movie with my dad, <laughs> he'd tell me why all of the ribbons and insignia on everybody's uniform were wrong. Well, I'm kind of doing the same thing with WKRP. They continue to have trouble when it comes to portraying audio production. This time, Herb is somehow able to talk back to the control room. Herb didn't switch anything. He just started talking into a hot mic that was somehow connected to the control room. Now, in a lot of stations, you can bring up the output from a studio on the board, but it's not hot all the time. In order for the guys in the control room to hear Herb, the studio Herb's in would have to be in queue on the main board. Then Herb would have to turn the mic on in the production booth. You don't just walk in and start talking. Mics aren't just sitting there on all the time. You only turn them on when you need them. Okay, technical workshop over. As the gang begins to assemble in the production room, we've got a quick production room poster watch if you look on the wall to the left you'll see a promo for the blasters this is a somewhat rare promo poster put out by their label slash it's supporting their second studio album called simply the blasters it was released in december of 1981 normally if a band does a self-named album it's their first album These guys called their first album American Music. The Blasters were an American rock band formed in 1979 in Downey, California. The Blasters were powered by brothers Phil and Dave Alvin. Dave wrote all of their originals. The Blasters played a unique blend of rockabilly, punk, mountain music, rhythm and blues, and a little country. (laughs) They called their particular sound American Music. There were no hits from this one and no chart action, but the blasters was a critically well-received album in the music press. Dave stops talking, and he and Johnny head next door. Herb motions where to stand and which mics to use. We'll do two mics, Dave, so you take that one. You take this one. And I'll be on this one. John will be on this one. Yeah. And I'll operate the tape recorder. He'll operate the tape recorder. Herb hurries over to the mic in front of Dave. It's too short. Wait, let me fix this. Herb jerks on the mic stand, but it doesn't budge. That's all right. Just stoop down there, okay? Okay. Uh, Herb gets out of stopwatch. Just stoop down. And none of this looks like real audio production. It looks like they're getting ready to do something on a stage with those mic stands. All right, ready? Okay, go. Okay, Wickerman, spot one, take one. Fat, what a bummer. (laughs) The only things worse are dieting and boring exercises. Well, now there's another way, and here's Dave Wickerman to tell us about it. Thanks, Johnny. Now you can cut your exercise program in half. Just supplement it with Wickerman's Weight Loss Energy Capsules. You know, Dave, the real 
downer about dieting is the way it makes me all cranky and out of sorts. Bad trip. Not anymore, John. When your mood is black, these little beauties will keep you going. And on those late Johnny nights, suddenly turns off the tape recorder. Down and out. Me, you need something to... Uh, listen, it's really, uh, exceptional copy here. I mean, the, uh, the <laughs> message comes through loud and clear. Great, great. That's, well, that's a pro talking, Dave. Yeah. Herb pats Johnny on the back. And the pro isn't going to do these spots. Johnny lays the paper down with a little bit of disgust and begins to walk out. Dave's confused. I'm sorry, what? Johnny looks at Herb. You know, Herb, your friend here is rather reptilian. What? Yeah, but if you put him on the air, you are definitely a snake. Woo! Johnny opens the door and leaves. Herb, calling his name, tries to follow him out, but the door slams in his face. Herb turns to Dave. Everything's kind of falling apart. Feeling very awkward, Herb laughs. <laughs> Johnny picked up on some coded words and phrases in Mr. Wickerman's copy. No downers here, fellow babies. We're going to talk about them more when we get to the bullpen. Right now, it's time to head into our theme. <laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from commercial break in Mr. Carlson's office. Andy is sitting on the back of the couch eating a donut, still trying to figure out how to use furniture. <laughs> he has a cup of coffee in the other hand. Mr. Carlson has his shoes off, and he's jumping. His hands are in his pants pockets, and he's jumping up and down on a small round trampoline. Hey, what visual gag could we do in Art's office? <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I didn't know the bouncing had any exercise value at all. Ha! Lot you know sitting there eating that donut. <laughs> Mr. Carlson asks Andy where they go anyway. Watch that, sir. The donuts. Right? Those suckers, they go straight for my belt line. When you eat them, apparently they turn into hair. <laughs> That made me laugh that's out loud a, when I first heard line. that. Jennifer enters the office with a stack of mail. She puts it on the corner of Art's desk while taking in the scene. Uh-oh, busy executives at work. Don't mind me. She's heading out when Carlson stops her. He's still bouncing. He asks if she hasn't forgotten something. Why, of course. Silly me. Jennifer walks over to stand right by Mr. Carlson as he keeps bouncing. Mr. Carlson, have you lost some weight? <laughs> you bet. Three pounds. <laughs> Goodness, I would have said at least 20. Oh. No, no, make that 30. You know, you should really stop dieting. You look positively emaciated. <laughs> Jennifer smiling up at Art. Thank you, Jennifer. That'll be all. <laughs> Carlson finally hops off the trampoline and goes over behind his desk. What Art's doing there in his office was part of a uniquely early 80s workout craze. It was called rebound exercise. You might think Art is jumping on a mini trampoline. It's not. What he's got is actually called a rebounder. Rebounders, first patented in 1975, were three to four feet in diameter, round and designed for a single person to use for exercise. You weren't supposed to do any stunts on a rebounder. Art is doing the basic bounce. Rebound routines also included jumping jacks, running in place, dance movements, and other types of choreographed movement. A 1980 NASA study caused a major surge in the rebounding craze. NASA discovered that jumping up and down on a rebounder burned more calories than running for the same amount of time. It was fun, and you could rebound in your living room, bedroom, basement, or office. 
In addition to weight loss and improved aerobic function, rebounding claimed a whole list of other benefits from increased strength to improved immune system function. Between 1981 and 1984, rebounders were selling to the tune of a million units a year. President Ronald Reagan was quoted as saying, if you see someone jumping up and down on the second floor of the White House, that's me, rebounding. By 1984, a flood of poor-quality foreign-made rebounder knockoffs put an end to the craze. Rebounding does have a resurgence regularly. Most recently, rebounding had an uptick in popularity in 2015. We had one of those at Mom and Dad's house when I was... You and I had one when for a while. When I was in college. And then, yes, we yeah, did. Yeah, we had one. And we would, I'd do the jump where you did the twist The twisting and jumping, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I guess Mom used it too, but I never saw her on it. Jennifer turns to Andy, who is coming to the end of his donut. On the other hand, you could lose a couple of pounds. Herb enters the office. Jennifer passes him on her way out. You too. Thanks. Jennifer shuts the office door. Herb turns in circles. He's looking for Mr. Carlson. Big gun. Big Big, big, big we hear grunting and groaning coming from behind Mr. Carlson's desk. <laughs> Andy points in the direction of the sounds. Herb walks over to find Mr. Carlson lying on his back doing sit-ups. His socked feet are hooked under his desk for support. Big guy, fever went nuts and attacked one of my clients. <laughs> Mr. Carlson stops doing sit-ups and looks at Herb. He also got Andy's attention. What? Uh, And a side note, what's with Art and the sudden fitness kick? He already went to his reunion. What's he getting all fit for? Getting all ready, unless he felt after the reunion, boy, I could lose a few, get back to get back to moose weight. Could be, but all of a sudden, he's really going at it. So Art is now on his feet. What are you talking about? Herb tells him it was Dave Wickerman from Wickerman's Weight Loss Studio. The nicest guy to ever walk this earth, and he called him a snake right to his face. Such a sweetheart. Andy says that doesn't sound like Johnny. Herb tells them Johnny called him a snake, too. Oh, that does sound like John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like John. Carlson picks up his shoes and walks over to the couch to put them on. Herb tells him if Dave wasn't such a nice guy, he'd have canceled right there on the spot. But fortunately, I just kind of jumped in there and turned on the old charm and saved the account. No thanks to Fever. Andy heads to the door of the office, saying that he'll talk to Johnny. He turns to face Mr. Carlson. Without saying a word, he swallows the last of his coffee and pops the last bite of donut into his mouth. Smiling, he wipes his mouth with his napkin and makes a yummy sound. You can almost see Mr. Carlson drooling. Andy leaves the office, shutting the door. Mr. Carlson hurries back over to the trampoline. Facing the window, he begins jumping up and down again. Herb walks over behind him, watches for a bit, and then... Did you gain some weight, big guy? (laughs) Mr. Carlson stops abruptly and turns to glare at Herb. And I'm a little upset with Andy. I have known guys in my life who have a metabolism like that where they can... Eat eat, anything. Eat their own body weight every day and never gain a pound. And I look at a box of donuts and I've gained two pounds. Oh, that was evil of Andy to do that. Just looking and smiling. Did you gain some weight, big guy? So we transition to the bullpen where Andy and Johnny are talking. Andy's holding a yellow piece of paper. Johnny's agitated. He tells him to take a look at that copy. But he's selling uh, diet aids. Well, they're not regular diet aids. Johnny takes the paper from Andy and reads from it. When your mood is black, these little beauties will keep you going. So? So? 
You think maybe the guy is trying to sell speed? Oh, come on, John. Johnny tells Andy he's trying to sell it to kids. He reads from the paper again. On those late nights before finals. Now, what does taking a final exam have to do with losing weight? Les is at the filing cabinet. You can tell he's listening to the conversation. Andy tells Johnny, this is nuts. The guy can't be selling amphetamines over the counter. Johnny tells Andy he believes he is. Actually, you're both right. Les slams the file cabinet drawer shut and walks back over to his desk. Oh, great. A drug expert. Les Nessman, drug expert. <laughs> and now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Right forearm. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. Black beauties, yellow jackets, mini white crosses, rainbows, reds, whites, ups, downs. Les walks over to Johnny, looking proud of himself. Les puts his arm on Johnny's shoulders as he goes on to explain. What you have here are probably lookalikes or uh, turkeys, as we say on the street. (laughs) Johnny nods his head, still looking at Les. Les turns to Andy as he continues. They're counterfeits of the actual amphetamines. They contain abnormally high concentrations of caffeine or other substances that are not federally controlled. But if you take enough of them, you go speeding. Les chuckles, crosses his arms in front of his chest, and looks at Andy, then at Johnny. As Frank Zappa once said. How do you know so much? That list that Les ripped off there. Reminds me of fifth grade health class and the the drug <laughs> unit that we did where we learned to watch out for. I never heard those names anywhere other than in that class. In that class, yeah. yeah. Well, you weren't hanging around with the right eh, kind of people, I guess. Not. Les tells him if they paid any attention to his reports, they'd know he did an in-depth study on these things weeks ago. And he looks a little bit embarrassed. These lookalikes have surfaced in a number of major cities, but there's nothing anyone can do about them because they aren't the real drugs. And he looks at both Johnny and Les. Well, if that's the case, then what is the harm? And whoa, Les was quoting Frank Zappa? It seemed like a random pull, just grabbing a name out of the air, until we did a little digging. Turns out Frank Zappa was very much anti-speed, the real speed, the stuff people were hooked on in the 60s. Frank was so committed to warning people about the dangers of amphetamines, he did a series of hard-hitting PSAs in the late 1960s. He was telling people to put it down. This is Frank Zappa from the Mothers of Invention. Hi, want to die? Start today. Use a little speed. You got five years. Rot your mind, rot your heart, rot your kidneys, kukaracha. A public service announcement of the Do It Now Foundation. Except for coffee and an endless stream of cigarettes, Zappa was very anti-drug use of any kind. Frank was known for firing band members who indulged. Frank famously fired Little Feet founder Lowell George, who was a member of the Mothers of Invention from 1968 until 69. George was caught using pot, and he wrote a song about dope he wanted Zappa to record. Well, he was fired immediately. He maybe should have listened to Frank. Lowell George will die of a massive heart attack 
just 10 years later in 1979 at the age of 34. Well, if that's the case, then what is the harm? Les looks at Andy and shakes his head. So naive. (laughs) You tell him, John. Johnny walks over to Andy and tells him that Kids think they are harmless because they aren't real amphetamines. So they start gobbling them by the handful. Andy gets a very serious look on his face. Taking the copy from Johnny, he says he will go have a confusing conversation (laughs) with Mr. Carlson about this. He tells them he'll take care of it. Andy leaves the bullpen. Johnny turns to Les. Les, uh, I know about Mary Jane, too. (laughs) So watch your step. Les strides back over to his desk. Mary Jane who? (laughs) Let's talk for a minute about what's going on here with the pills. The 70s were a transitory time for speed freaks. Later in this episode, Venus is going to say something about real speed wiping everybody out and nobody wants it back, not even the junkies. He was talking about legal amphetamines from the 1960s. Black Beauties, one of Wickerman's coded messages, were a popular amphetamine mixture of the time. They were basically the same ingredients in the same mix as what you'd find in modern-day Adderall. They, along with Dexies, Bennies, Jollies, and other drugs with upbeat nicknames, were popular in the U.S. during the post-war era. We'd been giving amphetamines to soldiers to enhance their performance and keep them awake for long periods of time. Well, once the military contracts for amphetamines had dried up, pharmaceutical companies started selling them over-the-counter right here at home. You could buy amphetamines legally without a prescription up until 1965. Amphetamine use was common among housewives in the 50s and 60s. Mother's Little Helper not only kept off the pounds, mom could also clean like a machine for eight hours at a stretch without blinking. (laughs) She goes running for the shelter of her mother's little helper And it helps her on her way, gets her through her busy day Legal speed use continued until the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 made amphetamines a Schedule II controlled substance. In the late 70s and early 80s, companies were producing the lookalikes less mentioned using primarily caffeine and ephedrine HCL. You'll hear it pronounced both as ephedrine and ephedrine, same stuff. Dubbed trucker speed by the late 80s, these over-the-counter stimulants didn't have quite the kick of their 60s-era counterparts. Even though they weren't amphetamines, they still got you amped. Those foil pouches on the rack by the cash register at the gas station were creating health hazards for teens and others who started abusing them. Les said he also knows about Mary Jane. He said this specifically to Johnny, who is America's first primetime pothead. Dr. Fever, of course, plays dumb. Mary Jane who? (laughs) Mary Jane is one of dozens of common nicknames for marijuana. That's who Tom Petty was singing about. Les dance with Mary Jane, one more time to kill the fame. Mary is also the girl the Beatles are singing about. Big inhale each time they say girl. It wasn't a mistake. (laughs) 
We move into the lobby where Jennifer has just filled her cup of coffee. She's walking back to her desk when Andy enters. He's headed to Carlson's door when Jennifer tells him he's gone to lunch. Andy asks Jennifer if she's seen Herb. Jennifer points behind her just as Herb enters from the door leading to the bullpen. Freeze. (laughs) Andy points at Herb. Herb looks up at him and smiles. Andy, I've been looking all over for you. Come on, let's do the lunch thing. What do you feel like having? A word with you? Herb asks, what has he done now? Andy tells him he's not sure, but they'll find out together. Okay, fine. Herb sits on the corner of Jennifer's desk. Jennifer pointing before Herb got there is kind of more Raider O'Reilly. Yes, uh, that's what I was thinking, too. She knew he was coming down the hall. Andy tells Herb the two of them and Art are going to pay Wickerman a visit. Herb brightens up about this. Smiling, he stands and points at Andy. You want to lose some weight? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe 160 pounds of polyester. Great! (laughs) Andy puts his arm around Herb's shoulders as they both head through the door to the bullpen. Herb stops, realizing what Andy just said. (laughs) Give him a minute. Yeah. Andy keeps walking. Herb freezes as Jennifer turns her back on him. She's suppressing a grin. Herb looks at Jennifer, then slowly walks through the door (laughs) to the bullpen. Okay, fine. Now we find ourselves inside a new set, somewhere we've never been before. It's Wickerman's Weight Loss Studio. The door opens and Mr. Carlson, Andy, and Herb walk in. The lights are off. Mr. Carlson hollers, asking if anybody's there. Andy looks around and he spots a display. Look! As advertised on WKRP. Andy points at a display showing a big sign promoting Wickerman's weight loss program. Several bottles are lined up on the plastic shelf and there are little information sheets also available. A door opens and Dave Wickerman comes out. He sees Herb and shakes hands. Hey, Herb. Dave. Hey, so you brought some of your buddies by, huh? Dave walks right past Andy and looks at Art. Dave taps Carlson on his belly. Oh, hey. Looks like you got here just in the nick of time. <laughs> he laughs and tells Art, oh, get him back into shape in no time. Um, Dave, have you looked in the mirror lately? Dave doesn't have a lot of room to talk. He could stand to lose a few pounds himself. Dave Wickerman is being played by Robert Ridgely. Although we met him in the cold open, we didn't introduce you to the man playing the very sleazy Dave Wickerman. Robert Ridgely is also regularly credited as Bob, especially when he's doing voice work. Robert Ridgely is an actor you may have seen, but more likely you've heard. Robert has 150 credits on his IMDb profile, and most of those are for voice work. Robert got his start on series TV in 1960 on an episode of a Western called Bronco. He was a series regular for 26 episodes of the 1962 military saga, The Gallant Men. He appeared on Bonanza nine times in nine different roles. Robert worked extensively in the 60s and 70s. In the mid-1970s, Robert did some voice work on a cartoon called Tarzan and the Super 7. Robert voiced Tarzan. This launched Robert into a very prolific voiceover and character voice career. Most of Robert's acting credits throughout the 80s are for voice work on various animated projects. He would intersperse the voice work with occasional guest shots on shows like Wings, Coach, and Evening Shade. Plus, he did pick up a few minor movie roles. Robert passed away in February of 1997 
at the age of 65. Dave tells Herb he's glad he came by. It will save him a trip. He's got some new copy. Just get any of the other jocks at the uh, station to record. Herb starts to introduce Mr. Carlson and Andy when Andy addresses Dave. Andy has the folded piece of yellow copy from earlier in his hands. Well, the truth of the matter is, sir, that we're not going to be running those spots after all. Dave tells him he's sorry, but he doesn't think they've met. Andy puts out his hand. I mean, Travis, program director, program WKRP. Drive. This is uh, uh, Arthur Carlson. Arthur He's the Carlson. station manager. Station station manager. manager. Yeah. They all shake hands. You can hear Herb repeating everything Andy is saying. He's trying to be in charge of this little meeting. Wow, all the brats, huh? Dave asks them what this is all about. Why won't they be running his spots? Carlson speaks up. A funny thing. <laughs> Would you believe we're sold out? Dave looks up at Carlson with a big smile on his face. WKRP? (laughs) Art looks a little offended. Andy steps forward. I think what Mr. Carlson means is we've had a little change in the scheduling situation, so we just like to give you this check back and call it even. Dave tells him he doesn't want to cause any trouble, but he needs to run those spots. Carlson follows Dave as he carries a box of product over to a table. You do? Yeah, listen, you have no idea how tough it's been just trying to get a station to sell me some time. Carlson and Andy turned to look at Herb. <laughs> yeah, nobody else is selling time. <laughs> Andy tells Dave Herb made a mistake in selling him that time. So Herb, you give him the check. Andy's holding the check out to Herb. Art mentioned WKRP was sold out, which raises the question, can a radio station be sold out? Aren't they selling air? Radio stations can sell out, but not usually the whole day, just certain time slots. Station inventory is normally determined by the program director and either the general manager or sales manager. A certain number of minutes are set aside each hour for commercial time. A common ratio is 12 minutes of commercial time per hour, leaving 48 minutes for news, weather, music, jock talk, and bits. Morning drive is sometimes expanded out to 18 or 20 minutes of commercial content per hour, including sponsorships for things like weather and traffic reports. Station traffic people have to keep a close eye on available inventory, especially in hot day parts like morning or afternoon drive. Once those 12 or 15 or 18 minutes are filled with ad content, that's it. The hour or the day part is sold out. Stations that regularly sell out will sometimes implement tiered rate cards. If a day part sold out, advertisers in at a lower rate could get bumped by someone willing to buy into the day part at a higher rate. Stations need to squeeze every dollar they can out of every minute of the day. Once a minute has gone by, it's lost. If a hot show causes advertisers to outbid each other for time, stations are more than happy to take those extra dollars. Back in the day, popular morning shows in big markets could be sold out for weeks or even months in advance. Herb takes the check from Andy, and he holds it out to Dave. Would somebody please tell me what's going on here? Andy nods his head. Surely. There's a beat, and then... Big guy? (laughs) Mr. Carlson walks over to Dave, telling him they just don't want him on their station. I mean, you're selling this stuff to kids. Dave tells them all to hold on a minute. He picks up a bag of his product. First of all... There is nothing wrong with my energy capsules. He pats the bag of capsules that he's holding. Well, that's not what we heard. Second of all, I don't sell anything to minors or children 
without the express consent of their parents. Dave starts walking back to the counter with Andy on his tail. What's that? A uh, note from mommy, is it? You check all the signatures out, do you? Andy can get a little combative. Yes. He can get aggressive. Dave turns to face them. I operate within the law, and I expect you to do the same. Art looks at Andy and quietly asks... What does he mean by that? (laughs) Andy walks over to Dave. What do you mean by that? Dave turns to them and explains. What I mean is that I have a contract in my office, on my desk, with your signature on it and yours, that says I get 18 spots a week for two weeks. And I want those spots. Dave is smiling at them, but he knows he may have them over a barrel. Mr. Carlson steps right up to Dave. I'm sorry, Mr. Wickerman, but we just can't do it. Dave pulls out the big guns. Oh, come on, guys. Come on, don't make me call my lawyer. I don't want to have to be the bad guy. Huh? Dave picks up a small bottle of his product. Why don't you just relax and take these and have a good time, huh? <laughs> Dave holds the bottle of pills out to Mr. Carlson. Mr. Carlson takes the bottle from Dave and tells him, to go ahead and call his lawyer. F. Lee Bailey, if you like. We have an attorney, too. There's not a court in this land that would make us run your lousy commercials. Art mentioned calling F. Lee Bailey as an attorney. At the time, F. Lee was probably the most famous attorney in the United States. He was licensed in both Massachusetts and Florida throughout his career. F. Lee was handsome, well-spoken, and media savvy. Bailey was known for taking high-profile cases like Albert DeSalvo, a suspect in the Boston Strangler murders. Bailey defended Patty Hearst for her robberies committed while she was involved with the Symbionese Liberation Army. Effley Bailey was also a part of O.J. Simpson's dream team. Bailey would fall on hard times professionally around the turn of the century. He was disbarred in 2001 in Florida and then in 2003 in Massachusetts. It was discovered Bailey had transferred a large portion of a client's assets to his own accounts to hide them from a plea bargain settlement. Bailey would never practice law again. He did apply to the bar in Maine several years later, but was denied a license to practice based on past moral lapses of judgment. F. Lee Bailey died in June of 2021, a week before his 88th birthday. And those assets he moved were described to be long to the marijuana kingpin of Miami, I believe. Oh. So a, a real upstanding guy that yes. he was helping out there. Would somebody please tell me what's going on here? We have a quick cut to Art's office. We go right from Dave to Art, and we open on a close-up of a man sitting in Carlson's chair. We don't know who this is. He's looking over some papers. The camera does a slow zoom out. We see Andy is on one side of this man and Carlson on the other. Behind the eight ball, up the creek, between a rock and a hard place, hanging by a thread with a snowball's chance in hell. Okay, the man removes his glasses and rubs his face as he looks up at Art. Carlson is standing with his hands in his pockets. He shuffles from one foot to the other. How how do you mean that? clear. The man stands and tells them if they let this thing get to court, they could be left twisting in the wind. This must be WKRP's lawyer, but it's not Elgar. Right. In season two, episode Mike Fright, when they called the station attorney, it was the memorable and hilarious Elgar niece who showed up. Arthur, listen to your lawyer. I'll think about it, Elgar. All right. 
In the meantime, I'll go down to City Hall and see which way the wind's blowing. Thank you. We spoke with the man who played Elgar. His name is Christian Seaborn. Check the podcast feed for our complete interview with Christian. So why isn't Christian back, reprising his role as WKRP's attorney? Christian had been called home to Seattle due to a death in his family shortly after his first appearance. The family visit turned into an ugly lawsuit. Unfortunately, the situation took a toll on Christian and health issues left him sidelined. He didn't make it back to Hollywood until after WKRP had been canceled. Additional lawyer episodes were written with Christian in mind, but when he couldn't be located, Max Wright was brought in to do the attorney role. Max does a great job, but we do miss Elgar. Make sure to check our interview with Christian for the full story. And Max does do a great job. Yes, Max is very good in this role, but Elgar was a lot of fun. <laughs> the man begins getting his things ready to leave, and Andy's shaking his head. You look, you've got to be joking. Lawyers never joke about the law, okay? The man's giving Andy a stern look and pointing his finger at him. Look, I'm sorry, Mr. Bartman, but that's not right. Uh, we're not talking about right. We're talking about the law. Bartman tells them they've made a contractual agreement with Wickerman and he's done nothing to violate the contract. Art speaks up. How can a judge tell me who I have for a client? Bartman turns and looks at Carlson. You do spots for aspirin, right? Carlson turns to Andy. (laughs) Do we? Andy nods his head, yes. So you have no policy against advertising over-the-counter drugs. Well, so what? So what do you think the man is selling, wall-to-wall carpeting? (laughs) This is touching on a pretty dicey free speech issue. It's far too big for us to get into here, but if you're interested, just check out advertising and free speech as a Google search. You'll find four or five legal journal papers right there on the first page. There's some bathroom reading for you. Mm -hmm. Frank Bartman is being played by Max Wright. This is Max's first appearance on WKRP. He will be back as the same character in the upcoming Circumstantial Evidence. Max was a fixture on American television for more than three decades. He started his career in the movies, both TV and theatrical, in the 1970s. He has 67 performer credits on his IMDb profile, but those represent at least a couple hundred episodes of TV. He was a series regular on ALF for 101 episodes. Hi, everyone. I'm home. Hi, honey. Supper's almost ready. Great. I'm starved. What's in the box, Willie? I'm fine, Alf. How are you? (laughs) Racked with curiosity. Cloaked in conundrum. And carrying a thesaurus. He was in 49 episodes of the TV series Norm. He even appeared on Friends a couple of times as Central Perk manager Terry. Rachel, uh, it's not that your friend is bad. It's it's that she's so bad... She makes me want to put my finger through my eye into my brain and swirl it around. Max was born in Detroit in 1943. He passed away in Inglewood, New Jersey in 2019 at the age of 75. Carlson tells Bartman aspirin 
helps people. Wickerman calls his junk stimulus. But it's all legal, and you're discriminating against them. Art's upset, and his voice is getting very raised. You're darn right we are, Frank. I mean, that guy doesn't even take his own pills. Heck, he weighs more than I do, for crying out loud. (laughs) Bartman tells Carlson he's not his conscience, he's his lawyer. He finally gives them his advice. My advice is run the spots for a couple of weeks. When his contract's up, it's all over. Andy does not agree. No, I say we cancel him now and we take our chances in court. Me too. Mr. Bartman reminds Mr. Carlson that he does not pay his retainer. Your mother does. So I'm to be reporting to her. Mr. Carlson gets a worried look on his face. You will. Uh-huh. Now, your mother... Doesn't go to court, you know. It's far too expensive and it's messy. So if it's your intention to ignore my advice, I'm going to tell on you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it comes down to. (laughs) Mr. Carlson is speechless. Uh Uh-oh, here comes Mama into this. We fade to black and head for a commercial break. I'm going to tell on you. We're back from commercial, and we find ourselves in the studio with Andy, Johnny, and Venus. We hear the police singing Spirits in the Material World over the air. So he sues, man. So what? Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a yellow zippered windbreaker jacket. The jacket has epaulets on the tops of both shoulders and a patch on the right shoulder. He's wearing no shirt underneath, but a dark aqua-colored bandana is tied around his neck, and it matches his dark aqua-colored pants. His pants are made from that parachute-like material, and they are tucked into brown knee-high boots. Andy asks Venus why he's so excited about this. Venus tells Andy because the guy is selling speed. Man, I thought speed was gone. We got to fight this guy. Andy tells them they can't afford to go to court, so forget about it. Andy, real speed is gone because it killed everybody. Junkies don't even want it back. Which brings us to... The line of the episode. Once the Republicans got in, everybody just switched to downers. And we don't think Johnny's talking about Reagan as the Republican. The Republican he's most likely referencing is Nixon. It was Nixon who made amphetamines illegal. And he tells them both, they're just going to have to ride this thing out. Johnny throws his hands up in the air. Great. When is Herb going after a concealable handgun account? (laughs) The song we're hearing is Spirits in the Material World. It was the first cut from Ghost in the Machine, the same police album with a poster on the studio door. It was the follow-up to the number three U.S. hit, Every Little Thing She Does is Magic. Spirits would go to number 12 in the U.K., and it would peak at number 11 on the U.S. Hot 100. song on a Casio keyboard while riding in the back of a truck. It was the first time he'd ever touched a synthesizer. He said it was just tap, tap, and suddenly there it was, a hit song. Which would be the difference between Sting and everyone else in the world. (laughs) 
I think Billy Joel did that, Billy too. could have done that, yeah. Andy hands Johnny and Venus each a yellow sheet of paper. He explains, these are the disclaimers. Now, I want these read before every Wickerman spot. Venus looks at the paper and reads aloud. This station does not endorse or recommend the use of the following product. Wow, really hard-hitting stuff. Andy tells them the lawyer wrote it. Yeah, well, he left out all the uh, whereases and therefores. <laughs> Andy says just do the best they can. And he leaves the studio. Venus begins complaining to Johnny even before the door closes. This is the worst, man. I can't believe they could force us to... Venus looks at Johnny. He can tell Johnny is devising a plan. What is it? What? You got that look in your eye. I can see it behind those shades. Johnny asks Venus, what look is that? That vigilante justice look. Johnny lets out a menacing laugh. (laughs) We move to the lobby where Jennifer is watering the plants and Bailey is at the filing cabinet drawers. We hear Johnny over the monitor. Whereas it is strictly the opinion of this announcer and therefore by no means a provable fact, the sponsor you're about to hear from is, to wit, a real scum bucket. (laughs) Jennifer stands up and looks at Bailey with a shocked expression. Bailey just kind of smiles. Bailey and Jennifer stand under the monitor, waiting now to hear the commercial. Trying to lose weight? All that boring exercise that you speak <laughs> nowhere is gone forever. No, we're quick weight loss program. Now, Felipe, now, Oh. <laughs> Bailey tells Jennifer they've been doing that for the last two hours. So far, the man has been called a scumbucket nerd, freak gutter snipe, and, uh, oh, what was that? Oh, yeah. A wahoo. <laughs> Bailey bends over with laughter, then stands up. What's a wahoo? I think it's an insurance company. <laughs> We're not getting the reference about wahoo insurance. We don't know if anyone got the reference. Googling for something from that era, we found Washington Mutual had dubbed themselves Wamoo right around this time. Maybe it's that, but they were a bank, not an insurance company. We couldn't find a solid Wahoo reference for this joke. I'm also sure whatever word Bailey said originally has been dubbed. It's Jan Smithers' voice, but each time she says Wahoo, it's a dub over whatever she originally said on the soundstage. And, uh, oh, what was that? Oh, yeah. A Wahoo. <laughs> I checked both the Kovar and Shout Factory discs in headphones. It's the same dub each place. It bugged me so much that we might be missing a joke. I reached out to Max. Former WKRP coordinating producer Max Tash responded, quote, it was many, many years ago. I don't recall any stories about that. Hey, it was worth a shot. And thanks as always, Max. If you have any details or any trivial 80s info about this topic, you know we want to hear it. Please send your Wahoo theories or info to our email address, wkrpcast at gmail.com. Art comes scurrying out of his office and right up to Bailey. Scum bucket. Uh, yes, sir. Ooh, Art's hot. He walks over to Jennifer's desk and asks if Wickerman's called in yet. Jennifer tells him not yet. Carlson sits on the corner of Jennifer's desk. Looking at Jennifer and Bailey, Art tells them his plan. All right, ladies, let me tell you what I think we ought to do. Jennifer, would you please call my lawyer? Yes, sir. Bailey, would you mind bringing me the heads of Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap on a product? <laughs> Bailey laughingly says, yes, sir. You may not realize it, but the head on a platter reference is biblical. 
In the Gospel of Mark, the story is told about John the Baptist and his imprisonment by Herod. A young girl named Salome danced for Herod. When he asked her what she wanted as a reward for her dancing, he quite generously offered anything. Her mother, the jealous Herodias, had instructed her to request the head of John the Baptist on a platter if she was given the chance. Salome did as she was instructed— John the Baptist was executed, and the grisly payment was made. Art asked Jennifer where Travis is. She tells him he's downstairs at the donut shop. <laughs> Call down, tell him never to come in here again and have uh, Les beaten up for no particular reason. No, I'll handle that. Bailey asks, what about Herb? Carlson stands. Herb is mine. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Gee, it's a pleasure doing business with women. <laughs> Art goes back to his office and shuts the door. Scum bucket. Back in Mr. Carlson's office, Frank Bartman has returned. He's talking to Mr. Carlson, who is seated behind his desk. Now, I know I didn't go to one of those big Ivy League law schools, and uh, I didn't graduate at the top of my class, but I do know that scum buckets... <laughs> is slanderous and definitely actionable. Mr. Carlson asks him what he means. Well, I think the legal term for it would be your keisters in a sling. Mr. Carlson looks at his lawyer, then puts his head in his hand. Oh, boy. Where did this guy go to law school? We're back at Wickerman's weight loss studio where Mr. Wickerman is on the phone talking to someone. I gotta admit at first I was a little ticked off, but uh, those spots, they're working like a charm. They're the talk of the town. We do a cut to the bullpen where we learn Andy is the person on the other end of the line listening to Wickerman. He hangs up before Wickerman can say any more. Gosh, dog it. (laughs) Andy uses some pretty strong language when he's upset. And come on, would you look at Herb? It's time! Herb Darling, fashion alert. We've seen this suit before. It is not so much shocking as it is just plain ugly. It's another ugly one. (laughs) Herb is wearing a dark brown three-piece polyester suit that has white thread trim all around the edges of the coat. His vest has gold buttons and he's wearing a white dress shirt with a brown checked pattern and a dark brown tie with a patterned diagonal stripe running across it. Herb asks Andy, what's wrong? Johnny and Venus's nut bar spots are working. Andy can't believe it. Of course they are. How many times have I told you the more tasteless commercials are, the better they work? <laughs> Andy leaves the bullpen saying he's going to go talk with Mr. Carlson about this. This might not be so easy to ride out. On the other side of the bullpen, Les is just hanging up the phone. He calls for Andy, but Andy's already gone. Les is holding a yellow piece of paper. Andy should see this. So should Mr. Carlson. Les walks out of his office. Well, then so should I. I want to show it to someone in authority. Right. Herb snatches the paper from Les and reads it silently. We see his face drop. He's got a worried, almost scared look. He asks Les where he got this. Les says it was a news tip. Now, give it back. Les grabs the paper from Herb's hands. Herb snatches it right back. No. 
and you're not going to show it to Mr. Carlson or Andy either, and I mean it, Les. Les stares at the paper in Herb's hand, not knowing what to do. We transition to the studio hallway, which means we've got a super quick hallway poster watch. Yay! The Ian Hunter poster is still there on the angled wall, but that's not what caught our attention. The giant yellow oversized poster through the door at the end of the hall is a promo for the Madness album 7, sometimes also called Madness 7. This was their third studio album. We're pretty sure they named it 7 because there were seven members in the group at the time. No hits or chart action from this one, but they sure tried. There were three singles, Gray Day, Shut Up, and Cardiac Arrest. I tell you why I didn't do it, because I wasn't there. Don't blame me, it just isn't fair. You listen to their side, now listen to mine. Come think of a story, sure you'll find me sometime. Madness is a British ska, pop, and new wave band. That clip was from Shut Up, but you'd never know it. We pulled all three of those cuts and noticed something about Madness. They don't have any hooks, and they don't reference song titles. Somebody must have clued them in, finally. The 1982 single Our House has an awesome hook, and they mention the song title throughout. Our house will be Madness's breakthrough. It goes top 10 all over the world. Madness broke up in 1986, then reformed with six of the original seven members in 1992. As of 2022, Madness is still out there performing. Andy is walking down the studio hallway when he hears... This is Herbert. Andy walks into the production room and he sees Herb at the mic. Herb says hi and asks how it's going. Andy wants to know what he's doing. Nothing much. What are you doing? Looking for Carlson. Why are you in here? Herb becomes very nervous. Uh, just making a quick tape. That's all. Not, nothing much. Mm -hmm. Andy wants to know what the tape is for. Put on the air. Andy puts his hand on Herb's shoulder. No, no, Herb, let me, let me explain to you how this works. You see, you sell the spots in the DJs. They go on the air. No. Another technical workshop. Halfway through the fourth season, and they still don't know how things work in a radio production studio. Herb had feedback in production. Feedback happens when a mic is on and it can hear the output from a speaker. The mic amplifies what's coming out of the speaker, so more of the same sound is getting pushed through the speaker until you get an out-of-control loop and a feedback whine. Unchecked feedback can destroy speakers and burn up amplifiers. Normally, the mic switch in a production studio is also a switch to mute the speakers. You don't have a choice. If you turn on the mic, you've automatically turned off the speakers. Why? It's entirely to prevent damage from feedback. You can fry an amp or blow a speaker in seconds if a feedback loop gets out of control. Even if Herb knew nothing about the production board, in any professional production studio, he wouldn't be able to create feedback. Herb can't stand it any longer. He just lets it all out. I have got to do this, Andy. I I've got to do the right thing. I mean, you're always doing the right thing, and Mr. Carlson's always doing the right thing, and, I, and I'm tired of being the only person around here without a shred of human decency. I mean, it, it bugs me. And he asks him, what is he talking about? Herb grabs the yellow paper he got from Les, and he hands it to Andy. Andy reads it silently. Oh, good Lord. Is this true? Herb grabs another paper, pointing to a place on it, and he hands the first yellow paper back to Herb. Do it. 
Really? Yeah, right now. Uh, you want to help me record it? No, we don't record it, Herb. You go right in there and we do it live. Herb looks frightened and tells Andy he can't do that. I'm the guy who always, always screws up, remember? Andy points at Herb. You're the guy that wants to do right, remember? Andy tells Herb to come on. They head to the studio. We can hear Keep On Loving Me by Teddy Pendergrass playing over the air. Andy opens the door to the studio, pulling Herb in behind him. All right, out of the way, guys. Herbert's going on the air. Johnny and Venus, for some unknown reason, are taking a turntable apart. They're trying to work on it. DJs should not be working on equipment. You know, it's funny. You work here long enough, you start hallucinating. Andy tells them to get out. Making sure he heard correctly, Johnny repeats what Andy just said. Herb's going on the air. Andy tells them, yeah. Does this mean we're going to have to go out and sell something? No, you got it. <laughs> Venus was playing a cut from Teddy Pendergrass called Keep On Loving Me. It comes from his September 1981 album entitled It's Time for Love. It's Time for Love would be the last album Pendergrass records before he is paralyzed from the chest down in a car accident. The Philadelphia-born singer was involved in a single car accident on March 18th of 1982. The car suffered some sort of mechanical error, and it's possible his brakes were tampered with. They never proved that. Pendergrass had a passenger who walked away with minor injuries. He suffered a spinal cord injury and was never able to walk again. This album will go to number 19 on the Billboard album chart. Pendergrass will continue to record and perform even after his injury. He died in 2010 at the age of 59. Venus gets up from the chair. Andy motions for Herb to sit. Herb's grasping the yellow sheet in his hand. Andy fades the song and introduces Herb. And now, a surprise editorial by Herbert Artolik, WKRP sales manager. Andy moves the mic over in front of Herb. Herb nervously clears his throat. A couple of days ago, I sold some commercials to uh, Workman's Weight Loss Studio. They were advertising these energy capsules and that were supposed to be legal and harmless. Well, today, a 15-year-old kid keeled over in his gym class and his coach found these pills in his locker I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I well I, I shouldn't have sold these spots to Mr. Wickerman and, and I'm going to tear up his contract I mean he, he says he's going to sue us I hope he doesn't but I just wanted to say I, I'm sorry that we advertised this stuff and well, we're not going to do it anymore. This is really the end of Herb's message, but he decides to take advantage of this chance to talk to the entire listening audience. I want it known that I, that I still believe in the uh, free enterprise system, and I believe in the right of anybody to advertise their product so long as it doesn't make kids faint. So, well, if you have a product that you'd like to advertise, just... <laughs> 
Herb Charlie, can the phone number? Johnny puts his hand over Herb's mouth as Andy grabs the mic. Thank you, Herbert. <laughs> now we continue with our regular program. Andy pats Herb on his back and tells him he did a good job. And I wasn't through yet. Yo, sure you were. <laughs> Johnny tells Herb he did the right thing. Herb smiles. I guess I did, didn't I? Yeah, even if you picked my show to do it, in. <laughs> Sorry about that. Herb stands up so Venus can have a seat behind the mic. Herb lets out a big breath, and smiling, he walks out of the studio. Andy's patting Herb on his back as he leaves the studio. Congratulations. As Herb walks out into the hallway, Mr. Carlson is coming toward him. Mr. Carlson says his name. Herb figures, oh, he's in trouble, and he begins walking away from Mr. Carlson. Herb, come here. Mr. Carlson puts his hand on Herb's shoulder. He looks Herb right in the eye. Thanks. Herb smiles as Mr. Carlson puts his arm around him, and they begin walking back down the hallway. Herb hesitates. He has to make two or three attempts, but he finally puts his arm around Mr. Carlson's back as they disappear through the door. We fade to black, and we head for a commercial break. We come back from commercial for the capper scene in the lobby. Venus enters. Andy's sitting on Jennifer's desk looking through his mail. Hey, man, guess what? Drove by Wickerman's on the way in. A lot of picket signs? Twice as many as yesterday. Now, here's the best part. There's a sign in the window that says, going out of business. Jennifer has a big smile on her face. Really? Andy tells them he had Herb check it out. The guy's landlord's throwing him out. Outstanding. So we've won. Venus begins walking towards the door, leading to the bullpen. No. Venus freezes, then turns around. He's moving to the other side of town. All perfectly legal. Andy stands. He and Venus head back toward the bullpen. The door to Mr. Carlson's office opens. Mr. Carlson comes out carrying his coat and wearing his hat. Jennifer looks him over approvingly. Why, Mr. Carlson, have you lost some more weight? As a matter of fact, I've gained four pounds and I feel great. How about you? I have one of those headaches I get whenever we get too much mail. Carlson heads for the door. If anybody wants me, I'll be down the donut shop. Mr. Carlson begins singing as he leaves the lobby. Jennifer looks shocked. Then she pantomimes fat by puffing out her cheeks and holding her hands out like she's describing a fat person. And the screen fades to black. And that's going to do it for pills. You know, that was one that... It's well-made, it's well-written, it's a great message episode, mm-hmm. but not a not lot a, of laughs. Yes, not a lot of laughs, and but it, it was a serious subject. But they've done serious subjects before they have, well, and had laughs. I was kind of thinking about In Concert, and with In Concert, with the Who tragedy, the first half of that was all jokes and funny and ha-ha and laughing, and Art had his facial mask on thing that he was wearing. It was a big joke. And then the last eight to 10 minutes was super serious after the tragedy had occurred. Well, that's supposed to be, we know that's going to be very serious, but we got some nice laughs at the beginning of that one. This one is just the occasional tee hee ha ha, just little side things, but the main message ran all through it. Yeah. The pills thing through the hole and it's so serious and it's such a, it's such a terrible thing. It's hard to make it funny. And they were trying to get a message across. Yeah, yeah, and kind of at the expense of the jokes. So a programming note, fellow babies, our laid-back summer schedule continues with another rerun over the 4th of July. Our July 5th episode will be a favorite from the vault. Then, starting on July 12th, we've got a string of new episodes all the way through until Labor Day. So, Donna, what is our episode in two weeks? We will be talking about changes. 
Herb decides it's time for a change in his wardrobe, and he enlists Jennifer to help him. Meanwhile, Venus is interviewed by Black Life magazine. This is a special episode, fellow babies. We talked to Tom Dreesen, who portrays the reporter. Tom was also Tim Reed's real-life comedy partner in the late 60s and early 70s when they performed as Tim and Tom. Don't miss changes with commentary from Tom Dreesen. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. You can find us on social media. Get onto our Facebook page at WKRPcast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!